0: If you want to get out your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We will continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. So we now find ourselves uh, in chapter 6. We're at the halfway point of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So chapters 5 through 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount. In the gospel of Matthew, he records five different discourses uh, or teachings from Jesus. This is the first Discourse. And so, what we found at the end of chapter 4 is that Jesus' ministry was known by his teaching. So, he first came as a teacher and then also a preacher. And I mentioned to you then that any good teaching has an element of preaching in it. Uh, Preaching just means to herald something with enthusiasm. So, hopefully, while I'm sitting here, stylish in the swivel stool, I can come up with enough enthusiasm that you'll believe that I am not just teaching, but in fact, uh, preaching as well. But then also, what was notable about Jesus is that healing was a part of his ministry. Now, I want to share that to say uh, that healing was not the main emphasis. But what the healing was was validation for who he said he was. He taught with authority, unlike anyone that had come along before. And and what authority did he have? He had the authority of God. So how do we know he had this authority? He he uh, came performing miracles, and so this is what we see. In the life of Jesus, the miracles validate the teaching. Now, I want to share that to say uh, many of you will go, you know, I've never seen a miracle in my life. I've never actually experienced anything miraculous. So does Jesus still work today like he worked back then? And I would tell you most emphatically that he does. And if you want to see a miracle, take a look in the mirror every morning. (laughs) At least that's what I do. When you think about this conversion that takes place in our Christian lives, this is nothing less than a miracle. For him to take our black heart and actually convert it this is why in john chapter 3 is jesus has this interaction with nicodemus the teacher of israel is what he's known as it was so hard for him to understand what jesus was talking about in teaching because he didn't understand the miraculous that what jesus was teaching about was spiritual and nicodemus kept trying to understand it in his flesh which led jesus to say look you're trying to understand things of the spirit in your flesh can't be done you must be born again you must be uh, in the flesh of the flesh to understand the flesh or understand the spirit excuse me the flesh understands itself very well the spirit however must be alive in order to understand in the spirit and so I want to point that out because as we go through the Sermon on the Mount many of these teachings are difficult these are hard to understand they're hard to put into practice in fact in our flesh they are impossible So when we look at Jesus' teaching expounding upon the law, it's very difficult for us in our flesh to understand, but this is why the teaching is meant to be lived out in the Spirit. And so uh, Jesus addresses two different groups of people in this sermon. The first is the unbeliever. He sits down he begins to teach. Those that come to him first are his disciples. We'll get to them in a minute. But then as he goes on with his teaching, as always happens, a crowd begins to gather around. And as the crowd gathers around, it's a mixed multitude. It's both the believer and the unbeliever. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to teach the unbeliever uh, how to drive them towards Christ. So the desire of this sermon is to prove to people you don't have the ability to do this on your own. You need a Savior. Good news. Jesus is here. He's doing the teaching. And the point of the law is to prove that you can't accomplish it on your own. So it's to drive people towards Christ. Secondly, then, for the believer, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to teach us how to live in Christ, how we are to live as believers. And so last week we looked at six Different examples as he went through these points of the law each time saying, you have heard, but then I say. He takes a law, a moral law, that is uh, understandable, like like, thou shalt not murder. We all get that. We can shake our heads, thou shalt not murder. That seems like a good idea not to go around killing people. But Jesus says if you've been angry, you've committed this sin. And so to everyone listening, this would have been shocking, like good grief. How hard is this thing going to be to live out? But what the point was is that you can't accomplish this in the flesh, that it's only in the Spirit. And so this is where we're going to find ourselves in chapter 6 today. Jesus has gone through these six different examples of of how the law is actually meant to be spiritual, and now he's going to teach us disciplines in our faith. Here's how we can maintain spiritual discipline. So pick up with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. We'll start with these first Four verses, and Lord willing, we'll get halfway done with the chapter today. Uh, He starts by saying, take heed. And so, stop right there. Jesus begins with a warning. But this isn't a warning like uh, you're getting ready to get smoked. This is actually grace. He's saying, listen, pay attention. Take heed. Perk your ears up a little bit. I'm getting ready to teach you a few things. I'm going to learn you some stuff. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet uh, before you as hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. And so the first place Jesus goes to is charitable deeds, giving. This could be of your time. This could be of your talents and abilities. But most specifically, Jesus is talking about money. He's talking about finances, which is always awesome to talk about as a pastor. You love to open up a sermon talking about giving. Everybody likes this. So what Jesus is talking about here is specifically giving in the temple, giving there at the synagogues, and what he refers to is uh, not letting them, their deeds sound like a trumpet. So let me just paint a little picture for you. There in the Jewish synagogues and temples, what they had were these chests, places where your money was given into. Now, out of the top of the chest, in order to make sure your uh, quarters and dimes don't get lost, they would have a horn or a brass uh, piece of metal that would come out of the top so you could toss the money down into the temple treasury. Now, they called these uh, horns uh, shofars because what they would actually blow for trumpets in Israel were a ram's horn or a shofar. And so they, they called these shofar chests. Now, what would happen with these... Uh, pharisees that jesus is specifically talking about is they would instead of just placing their money into the temple treasury they would stand back and give it a good toss let that metal bang around clang around a little bit they would let their trumpet literally sound off they would make it rain on that thing so they wanted to be noticed and so jesus calls them hypocrites now, for us, that makes our skin turn a little bit because we understand the definition of a hypocrite, but what he's actually referring to is a Greek actor. Hypokrites is what they were known as. This is an actor in Greek times for their plays, they would actually uh, play both the part of the good guy and the bad guy. They would wear two different masks. So the same actor would play a good character and a bad character. He would just switch out which mask he would wear, which is where we get our term two faced from. These men were literally two faced. So for all those that he's teaching, they would stand up and take attention like, wait a minute, he's calling these guys uh, two faced. And he's speaking this about the religious elite. So Jesus is laying it down there. Uh, he goes on in verse 3, something I want to point out. In verse 3, he says, when you give, or in verse 2, when you perform a charitable deed. I've heard in churches before that in the New Testament it's never mandated that you give. That is actually accurate. It is not mandated, but what Jesus says is when you give. It is expected. Now, the uh, the way in which we give is also important to God. So, if you think back to the story, uh, the Bible story of the widow's mite. So in that case of the widow's mite, and I won't go through the whole story for the sake of time, but she's there in the temple, and she only has two mites, less than a penny, and she places them into the temple treasury. This is this treasury that I put the picture of up on the screen for you. But uh, this whole scene takes place as Jesus is sitting there in the temple courts, and what we read is he was watching how they gave. Not what they gave, but how they did it. Now, all that to say, if you want to know how Jesus wants us to give, uh, I'm going to turn with you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, which, by the way, was a very wealthy church. They had a lot of money, uh, not a lot of morality, but a whole lot of money. What he says in verse 6 is, But this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how does God want us to give? He wants us to give cheerfully. The word there in Greek could also be translated hilariously. He wants you to literally, when you go to the spot where you give, or as you do a charitable deed, for you to laugh about it, because it's so funny. And not just a little chuckle. I mean a full-on throw your head back and "ha ha! Man, God is good. Isn't he good? Now, I'm not encouraging you to do this so you can show off. That's not what uh, the purpose is, but it's so as you reflect upon what God has done for you in your life, you can literally laugh because here's the reality. You're just giving back what was already his. He gave it to you in the first place. So we actually get to give. We don't have to. And the next thing I want to point out to you is that giving, notice where it takes place. It happens at the temple, in the synagogues, in the churches, because it's a form of worship that giving was meant to actually be a part of our worship process, not a a requirement to handcuff us. Uh, And and this is a a big thing in church today because at least for me growing up, it didn't feel like worship. It felt like being forced to. Have you ever been in a spot where they pass the plate, and I'm not knocking, passing the plate. Please don't misunderstand. But one of the reasons we do not and will not do it here is because every time I saw that thing coming down the aisle, I'm like, ugh. Oh, that feeling inside where it was frustration. And invariably, people will give more whenever you do that because uh, why? They're, they're uh, convicted by the person next to them who dropped something in the plate that they were frustrated about. And so each time, uh, this is what happens. But God says, look, I want you to worship me. I want this to be a part of just like singing, just like listening to teaching. I want this to be enjoyable for you. Now, uh, again, growing up, uh, this was something, uh, always great frustration. And what I couldn't understand, I could believe that God was a God of the universe. I got all that. But how is it he was so doggone bad with money? How is God, who is in charge of all things, always need more? Like, this seems not right to me. But the reality was, uh, I just struggled because of my own heart. (laughs) That was the real problem. See, God doesn't want us to give begrudgingly. He would rather you just keep it. If you can't give from a heart of cheer and an act of worship, and so as God changed in my life, uh, what I found was I looked forward to giving, that giving became something I got excited about. In fact, there was a stretch because I owned my own business a few years ago, and if you've ever owned a business, you find this to be true, there's some times where you don't uh, make anything. <laughs> and so I had a stretch of, of several months where we had no income. And if you've ever tried to figure out, if you're a math whiz, uh, 10% of nothing uh, is actually nothing. So so I could not give. So I went from a, a person who was frustrated by the thermometer up on stage on the building fund and the plate being passed to then excited about giving to then I I can't. I don't have anything in this season. And, and for me, it was one of those that, that really brought it back where I understood how awesome it was to be able to get to give this is a form of worship and so uh, as we grow as a church and we will grow as a church as we do uh, what you'll find is we will not uh, talk about money unless it shows up in the text and so that's the beautiful thing about going through the Bible verse by verse chapter by chapter line upon line is that you won't hear me talk about tithing again for several more months until Jesus brings it up again And, and then we will and here's the other beautiful thing about it. If you really want to know when we're going to talk about giving, uh, read ahead. You'll know for next week. Yeah. I'm not encouraging you not to come, but at least you'll be prepared for it when you show up. And, and so here, as we have needs as a church, we're going to do this. And I'd encourage you to do this in your own life. Take it to your dad. Take it to your father. Let him know when you have a need. And stand back and be amazed as he provides. Now, scripturally, just to back this up a little bit in in text form, uh, what God says in the Old Testament, and I want to provide you this as an encouragement for your own uh, personal life, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, this is what God says about giving. He says, bring all the tithes to the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me... Now in this says the Lord, a host, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, such, pour out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. This is the only spot in the Bible where you'll see God say, try me on this, where he literally says, test me and see what's going to happen. Now notice with me, uh, in Malachi, he doesn't actually mention anything about your heart or your attitude or the way you give. Because here's the reality. God is going to bless you whether you give with a good heart or a bad heart. He's going to bless you either way. The choice is really yours. How much of a blessing do I want to receive? Because giving cheerfully and hilariously and in a way where I'm not making it a big deal all about me, you actually get blessed uh, eternally. (laughs) Which is really the kind of blessing I think we all would like to have. Now, to go back to uh, him not being needy, God is not a god that is broke one last spot i'm going to turn in psalms chapter 50 Uh, this is what asaph actually writes about god he says for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills so god owns every beast and every cattle on a thousand different hills our father is a man of tremendous means he is not short On finances by any means and in fact not only does he own a cattle on a thousand hills verse 12 of Psalm 50 says for the world is mine and all its fullness so even the hills are his it's all his and so the reason this is a discipline of faith as we grow in this it's because as we grow we realize we're just giving back to him what he's already given to us all right enough tithing talk for several months let's continue on To the next discipline, and that is prayer. Verse 5 he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the, as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And so prayer is the next thing that Jesus is going to touch on. Now, for that, I want to just flip to the right a little bit in Luke chapter 18. And as we go there, what we're going to see is Jesus giving a parable of two different men that are praying. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And, and what we read there is also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and despised others. Verse 16, or verse 10, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, as Jesus is sharing this parable about these two different men praying, one being a a Pharisee. And Keep in mind, again, these guys are the religious elite. These are the ones everyone's looking to going, they've got it going on. Uh, But what Jesus says is the tax collector, the one who beat his chest and said, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me. He's the one that actually ends up being justified. Now the question comes is that if in verse 8 we read, Uh, that God already knows everything we need before we ever even pray. Why then should we pray at all? What is the purpose of prayer? He already knows what I need. Why then do I need to pray whatsoever? And so I wanted to share with you a few different reasons that we uh, need to pray. Uh, First, to build relationship. That my dad likes it when I ask is what I put up there. And I'll put this into our own perspective as parents. So if you're a parent in here, You know ahead of time what your kids need. It's no shock to you. You know that they need food. They need shelter, right? But you know what their needs are. But here's the other thing. We really like it when they ask. We get so excited when they ask. We're we're looking forward to them coming to us and going, Dad, I, I really need this, or would you mind this? We, we take great joy and pleasure being able to provide for our kids what they need, even though we already knew it ahead of time. It bolsters and builds our relationship. And so uh, I will also insert in here, we know what they need, and we also know what they want. And sometimes those are two different things. So if you're baby Madeline, you're always going to say, I'm hungry, I need can She's a big fan of can And unfortunately for her, you can't have can for every single meal. I know what she needs. She needs more sandwiches and less can ye. So uh, this is what we find in the first point. It's to build relationship. Secondly, prayer builds faith. That as I pray for things and I see God actually taking care of these things in my life, I, I, I learn to have more faith in him. And having more faith is never a bad thing. And so secondly, we get to build faith. And the third goes along with it. What it does is it lines my will up with his will. That's important to understand. It doesn't line his will up with mine. It aligns mine with his. Now, as we pray and as we grow in prayer and our will begins to line up with his, amazingly, what we find is what we pray for happens. Not just some of the time, every time. So uh, as we begin to grow in this relationship, my will becomes, Uh, His will, and so therefore His will is always going to be done. Now, am I saying, please don't misunderstand me, uh, not to pray publicly? Is this what Jesus is actually talking about? Uh, And the answer is an emphatic no. This is not uh, to tell you not to pray in public, but instead, public prayer needs to be an overflow of personal prayer. That if you don't have personal prayer time, you will not be able to have public prayer prayer time. Or you'll fall in the other camp. Uh, When you do pray in public, you will pray everything you've ever heard in church. Uh, Invariably, you'll pray it in the old King James. Have you ever heard somebody like that in a prayer meeting? This is someone that doesn't have any kind of private prayer life. They come into the prayer meeting and everything is, Lord, thou doth blesseth me. I don't know why you have to do it in English accent, but you have to do it that way too. This is how it goes. They end up praying on and on and on. Every Bible verse they ever learn in Sunday school, they want to make sure they recite in prayer. And the reason for this is there's no personal prayer life going. Because if there was, it would be more about a relationship and less about religion. Now, verse 6 is important when it comes to our personal prayer life. Uh, Notice what Jesus says. When you pray in your room, shut your door and pray to your father it does not have to be eloquent but it does need to be personal there is a special spot that jesus has for personal prayer time now uh, many will not pray in public for that very reason though i'm not eloquent i don't know how to speak i can't assemble the words together and so i'm embarrassed therefore i'm not going to pray out loud so If you're one of those that doesn't think you have the right words to say and it's a struggle for you to get them out of your mouth, let me just turn with you back to 1 Kings chapter 18 to a guy you might have heard of. His name's Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in all the Old Testament. And Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, he's got himself uh, in a spot where he's now in a showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. So on one side of this match, you've got 400 prophets of Baal. And on the other side, you've got Elijah by himself. And they're there, and and the, the showdown is about can they call down to their God uh, fire from heaven? And whichever God provides fire from heaven to consume the, offer, the offering that's there on the altar, then this must be the true and living God. And so Elijah, because he's a gentleman, he lets the prophets of Baal go first. And they are out there in... Uh, 1 Kings 18, they are muttering and ranting and dancing and jumping around. They even go so far as to start cutting themselves. It's this unbelievable scene. They start in the morning, and they continue this throughout the day. And what we see uh, is, and you have to love this about the Bible, is Elijah starts to mouth them. Right? He must have been from central Illinois. He starts to give these guys a hard time. He says, oh, perhaps, perhaps God's on vacation. Maybe he's taken a little time away. Or maybe he's asleep. You should probably pray louder because he's probably asleep. Or then, my favorite, he says, uh, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he had to have a little potty break. That's why God can't hear you. And so these guys go on and on, and absolutely nothing happens. And so then here's Elijah's prayer in verse 36 of chapter 18. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice. That would be 2.30 in the afternoon. So keep in mind, the prophets of Baal started in the morning. It's now 2.30 in the afternoon. That here's what Elijah the prophet came near and prayed. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are God and and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's it. All this time has taken place for all these other prophets of Baal, making their, themselves known, jumping around like crazy people. Two simple verses is all Elijah prays, and fire comes down from heaven. So much so that it consumes the sacrifice, the altar, the rocks that were there at the altar, everything just through simple, basic prayer. And, and here's the thing. Elijah knew who he was praying to. It wasn't that Elijah was a great prayer warrior. He just knew who his dad was. Amazing. And so I want to share that with you. And then also, when it comes to public prayer, I want to encourage you in this. Don't be afraid to pray for one another. That in the Christian church, for as long as I can remember, you'd hear this. Someone would would get up and they would share what's going on. And then what was the, the automatic response was, I'll be praying for you brother I'll be praying for you, sister and you know as soon as they walked out the door they didn't remember to pray for squat so I want to encourage you that when someone uh, tells you something that's going on in their life and they ask you for prayer uh, here this is complicated I came up with this all on my own you can write this down when they ask you for prayer pray that's it just pray so when we had first moved to Farmington, and I've shared with you guys a little bit about this, uh, we were as tore up from the floor up as you can imagine. And so we got there, my business is a disaster, and Angela starts to badger me about going to church. And because she's a relentless woman, over and over again, she's after me. And so eventually I just to get her to stop talking, I just went to church with her uh, very reluctantly. And, but before we ended up there, uh, she uh, ran into these ladies at the Civic center during a homeschool PE group, and these are actually the ladies that invited her to church for the first time, uh, which eventually ends up completely changing our lives. But one of the most impactful things that happened is Angela was sharing with her some of the struggles she was having, probably that she'd married a turd. So that's kind of a big struggle. And so she's sharing with this lady, uh, her name was Dana Debert, and she said, would you mind just praying for me, this is what's going on. And to her shock, In the parking lot at the Civic Center in Farmington, Missouri, this woman just starts praying. And so she comes home and shares with me, and I'm like, that's flipping weird. Like, who just prays in the middle of a parking lot? Like, why would? And yet, something was incredibly impactful to her, and because I'm hard-headed, eventually, to me, that these people would have the audacity to just stop, whatever they were doing, and pray. And so I want to encourage you that when someone asks you for prayer, even if you don't know how to assemble the words together, that just the very act of praying for one another, it's incredibly impactful. And secondly, and finally on this topic, you will grow close to people as you pray with them. That as you pray with people, you will find a completely different spiritual, emotional connection with folks as you get the opportunity to pray. And so pray with people. Because you will grow together. And, and it doesn't matter if you have things in common with them or not. The people that we would pray with every single Sunday, many of them I had nothing in common with outside of the fact that they would just uh, pray with one another. One of the gentlemen that I can remember vividly is Lyndall Miley. Lyndell drives a trash truck for waste management, drives up to the city every single day, a, a, you know, big man, and, and, but yet he prayed every week. So Lyndall and I didn't have a lot in common. He's from Birch Tree, Missouri. you ever been to Birch Tree? Like, no, never been to Birch Tree, Missouri, uh, where apparently they would have contests uh, during the summer festivals where you try to climb up a telephone pole. And whoever get to the top of the telephone pole, you could get a $100 bill off the top of that telephone pole. And to make it even more exciting, they would wax the pole. I have no idea why they would wax the poles to see who could climb. We didn't have a lot in common, Lyndall and I. But I love that man. Deeply. And anything I ask him to do, he would do it. And I for him. Why? Because we prayed together. Just simply through prayer. And so I want to encourage you in that. So the question would come up then from the disciples, not in Matthew's account, but in Luke's account, was if we are to pray, how then should we pray? And so pick up with me in verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so what we see here is what most of us know as the Lord's Prayer. I would like to share with you that this is more of the model prayer. Jesus is modeling for them how to pray. And if you want to know what the Lord's prayer actually look like, uh, looks like, turn to John chapter 17. Read through that. That's how Jesus prayed. This, he's setting up for us what the structure of prayer uh, could look like and should look like. First of all, it starts with God, and then it goes to you. Lots of times I like to start with me, and then I uh, fill it in the middle with me, and then I like to end with more of me. Uh, but, what Jesus says is starts with God and then goes uh, to you, and he's intentional about that order. Verse nine, we see him say, uh, You should start like this, our Father stop right there. can you call him Father? Because if that's a struggle for you, then the whole rest of this is going to be a struggle. You need to go back to the point at uh, one salvation, which side of this do you fall in and for some Uh, Folks, they've had not great dads. And so saying our father, it's a difficult thing. But here's the thing. He's not your earthly dad. (laughs) He's your heavenly dad. And he is always good all the time without exception. So it starts with acknowledging him as father, not lord, not master, but father. Our father in heaven. So the, the second thing to know about our dad is he's not here. On this earth, he is in heaven. He is in charge of all things all the time. So we've got a dad with means. He's got access to things that we don't have access to. Next, we see hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is a big, scary word. What it just means is holy or reverent or respectful. How honored is your name? And so the the name that he's speaking of specifically is way back in Exodus chapter 3. This is Moses who's talking in the wilderness to a bush that's on fire. Nobody thought Moses looked like a crazy person as this was happening. So as Moses is talking to a plant that's on fire, and and the plant tells him, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Go back to the people and tell them, you're in charge and you're going to lead them out of Egypt. Uh, Moses is a little concerned about this. And so he says, God, who am I even going to tell them who sent me? And so God gives him in Exodus 3 verse 14, Uh, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Now that name in our Bibles, when we see it spelled out capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is this name of I am. It's the letters Y-H-V-H. It's sometimes pronounced Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, We're not really sure why or which one is correct because they believe this name to be so hallowed that they wouldn't even put the vowels in there. Only consonants. And so what's happened is over time, uh, we aren't sure which vowels to plug in. So that's the reason you sometimes get Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah. The point is, this is the covenant name of God to the nation of Israel. And what it means is, I am. I am what? I am whatever you need me to be. I am you fill in the blank. And so throughout Scripture, you're going to see spots where he is, uh, he refers to himself, or the nation refers to him as uh, Jehovah uh, Tisidkanu. I am your righteousness. You don't have any on your own. You need mine. I am that for you. I am Jehovah uh, Rophe, the Lord, my healer. I am God, the healer. And then what we see here is I am the uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. What does he provide? Verse 11, your daily bread. Your needs is what he provides, not your greeds, unfortunately. Oftentimes, I'm very interested about my greeds, uh, but he's not nearly as concerned. But the provision here is for daily bread. He then goes on to, in verse 12 to talk about uh, forgiveness. we'll catch up with that here again in a minute in verse 14. But then, uh, notice with me, he says, uh, verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The prayer is to lead and to deliver. Why? Because we cannot lead on our own, and we certainly cannot deliver on our own. We need him to do this. And then he ends with a doxology. Doxology. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is a big, scary word, doxology. What it really just means is uh, doxo is glory and logos is word. Smush it together, you have a glory word. It's just an opportunity to praise him one last time. Now then, Jesus expounds upon his comment in verse 12 on forgiveness because he knows uh, this is hard for us. And so he says, For if you forgive, in verse 14, men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so he's intentional about using this word uh, trespasses. A trespass is different than a sin. We talked about this several weeks ago, that that sin is the, uh, the idea of archery, so missing the mark. So if I'm an archer and I pull back my bow and I intend to actually hit that bullseye in the back of the room, but I accidentally miss, that is a, a sin. Now, the destination point is the same as a transgression, but the heart behind it is way different. What Jesus is talking about is transgressions. This is where I draw back my bow and arrow and I'm pointing at the target. and I'm like, you know what? Today, not feeling like a target day. And I just intentionally move over and let it fly. So I don't know about you. But there are lots of days where I just don't feel like it. That's what Jesus is talking about. So when people have harmed you, even intentionally harmed you, the encouragement here is to forgive. And this is very difficult for us. Again, this is the reason why he pulled this text out, and he says, forgive so that you can be forgiven. What the Apostle Paul would write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 He says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So how then can I forgive? Because I've already been forgiven by Jesus. In Christ, he has forgiven me of everything. Even before I became a believer, he forgave me. He died for me while I was still a sinner. And so what I want to... Uh, just remind you of too when it comes to forgiveness and maybe i'm the only one in this spot it's that sometimes the most important person i have to forgive is myself it's me and so if christ died for them and he also died for me i need to pay special attention that he has already died on the cross he laid that thing down for me i need to forgive me and then you can receive the forgiveness He's got for you. This is what grace actually looks like. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. I deserve hell and death. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. In no way do I deserve heaven. He's going to give it to me anyway. So when it comes to people that have hurt us, or even when it comes to ourselves, grace means giving them what they don't deserve. Now, continuing on with this last section of Scripture, verses 16, and we'll finish up with verse 18. He says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with the sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your heads and wash your face so that you do not appear to men as fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And so the final piece of Scripture when we're looking at these spiritual disciplines or disciplines in faith is that of fasting. And like prayer and like giving, it's not mandated in Scripture, but notice with me what Jesus says is not if, but when you fast. Now, the idea of fasting begins way back in Leviticus, way back in the law, chapter 16. And it starts at this time called Yom Kippur, one of their great festivals they would have. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It was the one day a year that the high priest could go into the temple and then into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was at, and he could make atonement for all the nation. He would take the, the blood of the lamb and he would actually sprinkle it over the top of the Ark and specifically on the mercy seat which is also known as the propitiation, which is why both Paul and John call Jesus our propitiation. He's our payment that turns away wrath. So on that day, what uh, Leviticus 16.29 says is that the nation was to afflict their souls. Now what does soul affliction look like? Well, the nation of Israel decided it was fasting for a day. They would take a day off from sundown to sundown and they would not eat. And if you've ever tried to not eat for a day, that afflicts your soul. That hurts. And so they would afflict their flesh, but knowing that we are connected. We are, we are three-part beings. We are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. And so when you affect one, you affect the other. And so they uh, decided to afflict their souls on this day of Yom Kippur. And still to this day, during Yom Kippur, if you know any Jewish people that consider themselves Orthodox at all, they will fast On Yom Kippur it it happens in that October time frame now then at this time what we looked at earlier when we were in Luke 18 when that Pharisee was praying he said I I tithe and I fast twice a week so at this point in time Pharisees those that were really hardcore legalists they would not fast once a week but two different times a week now interesting if you look at Jewish tradition is that they would fast on Tuesdays and Fridays which just so happened to be the busiest days in the marketplace. Fridays were the busy days because the next day was Saturday, Shabbat, the Sabbath. Everyone would come into the market to buy their food for the Sabbath. They would they would take the whole next day off. The markets were closed, but then after the Sabbath, what do you have if you fasted for a whole day or, or taken a whole day off? You have yourself a big old parte. And so they would fast the day before the Sabbath, knowing that everybody was going to be in the marketplace, and then they would paint their faces white to make themselves look uh, even uh, more pasty and emaciated, and then they would groan in the marketplace. Oh, my belly! I'm so hungry because I love the Lord. Oh, and people would look at them and go, oh my, how religious. Look at the piety of these men, these Pharisees. They're righteous. Look how righteous they are. And they're fasting. And what Jesus said is that you've already gotten your reward. Because you wanted to be noticed by men, good job, men noticed you, and now you've been rewarded from men, not from heaven. Now, what we find about fasting is that true fasting means saying no to my flesh and yes to the Spirit. So if you've ever taken the time to fast, you know just how hard this is. It's an opportunity, though, for you to deny your flesh and then to just spend it with Jesus. Because as uh, the pains come, you're able to reflect on him. You realize your weakness in the middle of this. And then beyond that, what you find is you've got a whole lot more time to pray. You have any idea how much time we spend getting food ready, getting food eaten? getting food cleaned up. I mean, we spend a bunch of time. If you've ever been to our house, my wife hardly gets out of the kitchen. That's why Papa had to buy her a new kitchen because she never leaves. She just walks around that circle, right? So we spend a tremendous amount of time with food, and so what we find is i got free time all of a sudden. I can spend it with the Lord. Now, when we want to look at what God's idea of a fast is, I want to encourage you to just turn back to Isaiah chapter 58, And this is what God says about fasting in verse 6. He says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? So here's God's fast. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, you would cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be in your rear guard, and you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. So what God says is, what I want to have for a fast is I want to have relationship with you and in that relationship look at what I'm going to do I am going to take oppression and lift it I'm going to loose the bonds of wickedness I don't know about you but I've had some bonds of wickedness in my life he's saying fast and watch how I break these things I'm going to encourage you to give bread to the hungry you want to know what it's like to be hungry take a 24-hour period off and you'll find out you'll have a lot more empathy for folks that don't have food he says, for the, for the poor, for the naked, and, and here's the beautiful thing, I'm gonna have a light break forth in you. He will do amazing things in your life as you fast. And what's most beautiful about this is he will hear your cry. So if you've got something weighing on you, I wanna encourage you. If you've got something that, that is happening in your life, take an opportunity to fast. For me, it's a discipline that I've struggled with, obviously. <laughs> God doesn't fast a whole lot right here. Here's the thing. It's not for a diet. It's to just simply spend time with him. And so once a week, I try to just load it up, take, take time to pray for things that are specifically on my heart, folks that I know need prayer, uh, my own uh, things that I have going on, and I, I eat uh, dinner usually on a Thursday, and I don't eat again until Friday evening for dinner again. And what you find is, amazingly, uh, after the first meal passes, you're not even that hungry anymore, and you're able to just praise and and glorify that you can have some victory over your flesh. So if you're struggling to have any kind of victory over your flesh whatsoever, what my God says he's going to do is break the bonds of wickedness through fasting. So it's amazing. And lastly, what I'm reminded of is my weakness and his strength. I am so weak, I can't even go a meal. But he is so strong. And so that's what we see in this final uh, discipline of faith today. And so just as a recap, what we've looked at today is we have looked at uh, four different things I want to leave you with And I'll wait for him to pull up on the screen because I come up with these all by myself and I'm real proud of myself. There you go. Here's what they look like. Giving cheerfully first. Praying fervently, forgiving freely, and fasting expectantly. So giving in a way where we can literally give to people, give to causes and things in such a way where we laugh in the process of doing it. Praying fervently what james five sixteen says in the king james it says that the righteous prayer or the fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much that's kind of hard for me to understand so i like what eugene peterson says in the message i understand this a lot better the prayer of a person living right with god is something powerful to be reckoned with so if you think you are powerless out there right now this is what god says about prayer it's something to be reckoned with fervent prayer Intentional prayer. Thirdly, forgiving freely, starting with yourselves, forgiving yourselves for the things that so easily weigh us down, and then forgiving others around you. And then fourthly, fasting expectantly. You want to see what God is up to. You want to see him move in your life. I would encourage you to put these disciplines into practice and be prepared because he's going to move. Father, thank you so much for this teaching. Thank you, Lord, for the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, there are difficult things in here, no doubt. But thank you that you are so gracious that you give us an opportunity to take heed, to pay attention, to listen up to what you've got going on. Lord, I pray that as we think about the different disciplines you've laid out, that we would be encouraged today. That just one at a time, start at the top. Lord, that we'd be able to give with a smile. And then we'd be able to pray with some fervency in our life, with some intentionality as we pray. And Lord, help us as we work on this lifelong struggle with forgiveness. And then lastly, Lord, to be able to conquer flesh because you are so mighty and be able to actually fast with some expectantly, looking forward to what you're going to do. So Father, I lift up those that are here and those that are online. Lord, please Bless this day. In Jesus' name, amen.